0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 302 of the Fun With Cars Formula One and Other Motorsports podcast, or episode 36 of 2021. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man who is enjoying some
1: fine English weather right here in Michigan, Christopher Roche. Hey, Chris. Yep, it is a beautiful day here in Michigan. It's been raining incessantly for what seems like a month now. It's not really been a month. It's been three days, but it feels like a month.
0: And it's it's proper rain, too, because, the truth be told, it rains in Michigan every bit as much as it rains in England. So people here are used to it. But a, a car show event called Motor Bella, which is going on as we speak, canceled its events today because it was raining so much. So it's raining enough for Michigan folks to cancel a Michigan thing in Michigan. That's a lot of rain.
1: <laughs> Yeah, these electric cars, do they work in the rain?
0: (laughs) 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 Motorbella is far from an electric vehicle-only thing, sir, I should add. Yeah, okay. Um, And uh, we're actually going to talk about uh, said car event just a little bit at the end, but uh, that's foreshadowing for now. It is Wednesday morning, September 22nd, and Chris and I are going to talk about the last two IndyCar races First, the one in Portland, and then, most recently, in Laguna Seca, as well as a bit of IndyCar news, but, Chris, I'm sure you have a bit of Formula One news that you want to go with first.
1: Yeah, I mean, in the last podcast, we talked about the, the Schumacher documentary that's come out on Netflix. I had a chance to watch that the other night, and um, despite reading a few fairly disdainful reviews on it, I actually thought it was pretty decent. <laughs> I mean... I'll qualify that by saying if you're, if you're tuning in to learn about Michael Schumacher's current condition and how it's been for him since 2013, since the skiing accident, you're going to be none the wiser. But if you're really interested in learning or watching great archive footage of Schumacher when he was a Formula One race driver, it's, it's pretty good. And they got some some uh, a good list of luminaries who weigh in on, on his career. And I actually was surprised. It was a bit more balanced than I thought. They, they tackled some of his... Uh, Uh, more troublesome times. Some of the controversies. Some of the controversies, exactly. And they did it reasonably well, actually. Um, So, yeah, it's definitely worth a watch. Really, there was footage of him karting that I'd never seen before, which was really interesting. Um, So, yeah, good stuff.
0: Let's tackle a couple of things there. What did they say about the accident?
1: Um, There's a lot... I mean, it's fascinating, honestly. They they don 't really talk about exactly what happened. They talk about you know that obviously he was skiing, and they talk about that he actually had suggested that the snow conditions weren 't great, and that maybe they should go uh, skydiving in the Middle East instead. Um, but you know <laughs> what I would have, what, what I would have liked to have had is a bit of a, you know, an explanation of what happened, maybe the odd neurosurgeon piping in in terms of what his exact condition was or is um, some some real facts about his current condition. You know the, the 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 family talks about him in the past tense at some points, as if he's gone, and yet then they qualify it by saying, you know, how they're trying to support him. I mean, it's all very odd the language used, yeah, and doesn't really give us any really concrete understanding of what his condition is. Um, and it's, I mean, obviously, it's, it's very sad and and. They talk about how he liked his privacy, and and they're trying to maintain that. And we, you know, I think we can all appreciate that. But still, there's there's no there's no real new information in this documentary about his condition. So you, if you're if you're tuning in just for that, you're probably going to be disappointed. But it's yeah. worth it just for seeing him, um, you know, and and his incredible F1 career.
0: I think the problem is that what people seek, just in all forms of life, in all things. Uh, Formula One, race drivers being no exception, is some sort of closure. And it seems like what's really lacking here is any kind of closure, be it this is his condition now and this, you know, and we're just going to maintain it. But he's no longer a public figure, so leave us the F alone. Or this is what we can hope to achieve. We'll check in with you five years from now or he never really liked any of you and is just wants to stay in bed also get off his lawn like something that says let's let's settle this and move on to something else and i think that's what's missing here is any kind of like definitive closure to this dramatic episode of Schumacher's accident and you know having a cliffhanger go on from over uh, what are we, we're approaching eight years now. Right. You know, that's that's getting a bit long in the tooth as cliffhangers go.
1: Yeah, I mean, the cur- the thing, one of the things that surprised me about the documentary was they, they cover Schumacher's um, reaction to Senna's death. So we actually, they, they made the decision to broadcast, you know, Senna's impact with the wall at Imola, which I thought was a little unnecessary, and some of the relatively graphic footage you know, when he was in the car and being extricated and loaded onto the helicopter. You know, that's not really imagery that I certainly want to have replayed. I, I don't need to see that again. I saw it the first time, um, you know, and it was sad enough then. So they, 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 they certainly tackle that head on, no pun intended. Um, so it the, the whole mystery around uh, Schumacher just seems even more, peculiar that they were willing to share that but not any more information about his own um incident it's uh you know i guess it's a shame it's a shame i think it would help i think people would lose interest if we got as to your point if we got some closure and there was a clear statement we understand his condition we understand it probably won't change and then we can all move on but i think the mystery and the the lack of transparency just makes everyone more curious
0: yes uh considering my history and line of work now and everything else, I would call this a PR failure. Um, Now to call someone call a human life that's been badly injured and uh, done so much for uh, society and the group of people that love racing. That is awful to uh, be uh, so uh, simplistic and inhuman. (laughs) I'm not trying to suggest that, Schumacher's tragedy is a PR disaster. I'm just saying this this one sect of it and I do feel that everyone would have just feel more settled and move on if there were something but at the exact same time it is ultimately a private family decision and that is what the rest of us just have to accept you know there are a lot of circumstances where people seek closure and they just don't get it so It's just one of those things in this world that we have to accept. And uh, I think it's really important to put this documentary in context, which you did brilliantly well at the beginning to say, let's look at the development of the person and the career of a racing driver that went on to win seven Formula One World Championships, um, beating the what once was thought to be unbeatable record, of uh, Juan Manuel Fangio's five championships and just accumulating an insane number of pole positions and uh, race wins and so many accomplishments, fastest laps, wins at a track, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, with controversies, with, uh, with rivalries, with teammate issues, all these things. It was just an immensely fascinating career completely aside from the fact that he had a terrible skiing accident off piste in late 2013. So it's, it's, you have to separate those two incidents. And if you can do that mentally, it sounds like you could really enjoy this documentary.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's, that's true. You shouldn't be put off watching it just because it doesn't give a satisfactory answer to his current state. I mean, there was interesting things that they omitted. I, I thought that their coverage of his gap in his career, where he went off and, and did uh, bike racing and actually injured his neck while he was bike racing, that wasn't discussed at all. And they, you know, they didn't really go into a lot of the decision-making process about coming back and his expectations for his return. I'd have loved to have known if he thought he was going to just pick up where he where he left off and start dominating the sport again, which, of course, didn't happen. Uh, and, you know, if you, his career stats are really quite badly affected by his return to the sport. If he'd left at the end of uh, his Ferrari days, uh, he'd look a lot more, uh, even stronger.
0: Yeah, at the end of 2006. Right.
1: That's right, yep. So, yeah, there's definitely this, the, the, there are some... Uh, parts of the documentary where you kind of feel that there could have been more information, but it's still it's still a good watch. And as I said, there's some great footage of him racing at different points in his career, um, and uh, and the, you know him racing hacking and in, in go karts is, is is worth the price of admission alone. And the price of admission is free, by the way. <laughs> if you <have laughs> it's a Netflix, it's a Netflix subscription.
0: But yeah. I would love uh, a closer examination of him racing Mika Hakkinen. That was his great rival, uh, certainly in the late 90s and in the early, uh, early aughts, and uh, as, as well as the controversy, was it uh, Damon Hill in 94?
1: Um, yeah, Hill in 94, kinds... Villeneuve yeah. in 97, yep.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it'd be interesting to get that... Uh, onion that particular onion unpeeled a little bit for us and it's certainly on my list to watch
1: yeah and actually uh, Damon was the one who is uh, providing the insight into that whole 94 uh, crash in the in the season finale Um, so yeah it's a really good perspective uh, on that particular incident and um, it's more uh, we don't hear from Jacques you're one of your favorite all-time drivers unfortunately but we do hear from people like uh, Ross Braun who Actually, goes as far as admitting that uh, Schumacher was at fault on that day, which is oh really? Is, wow. Yeah, that's groundbreaking.
0: <laughs> I, I, I mean, it, it's been speaking of unsolved mysteries. Well, that was one of them. So, thank goodness we can put that one to bed.
1: <laughs> well, he was disqualified from the uh, the ninety seven season, so Schumacher. That is,
0: yeah, of course, of course. So, as a whole, you do recommend. People watch this documentary it does sound like
1: yeah oh yeah definitely I, I i mean the racing footage alone and oh my goodness the screaming v10 soundtrack brilliant loved it oh
0: yeah oh geez yeah i miss that sound absolutely well um i have some formula one news that is uh, a little bit more newsy and that is that martin whitmarsh is returning to the sport in a way um he has been hired on as the group CEO of Aston Martin Performance Technologies, which will, among other things, oversee the Aston Martin Formula One team. So Martin Whitmarsh is working for Lawrence Stroll. So he's back in the sport in a way.
1: Yeah, I mean Aston Martin are trying to, you know, do all the right things. They're bringing bringing in the right sort of individuals. They're investing in the in the uh, new factory, as we talked about, and uh, they've re-signed Seb for next year. Um, I don't know about Whitmarsh, though. I mean, he presided over some of McLaren's biggest failings, didn't he? I mean, the whole Spygate was under his watch. So <laughs> an interesting appointment. Yeah. but uh, I mean, he's Maybe. had
0: some successes as well, to be fair. I mean, he was with McLaren for 25 years. There were some good times in there.
1: There were, yes. Uh, whether you can attribute those to him, I'm not so sure, but...
0: Uh, well, I, I'm I'm sure I will let him attribute them to himself uh, when the time <laughs> comes, and then we can decide whether we agree or disagree. But, you know, I, I feel that... it. I'm curious to hear your point of view on this, actually, just as a quick aside. Ron Dennis had a very particular way of running McLaren. And anyone that stepped outside of that... It was going to raise eyebrows because people were so used to the Ron Dennis method of handling things. And do you think that – I wonder if people would say, oh, well, it's worse because it's not the same way. Or do you think that maybe it was just different, not worse or better, and uh, he gets a bit of a bum deal as a result in terms of reputation?
1: Well, I think certainly he was indoctrinated in Ron's way of doing things, wasn't he? So, and was able to to fulfil the role he was, uh, or roles he was placed in, to Ron's satisfaction. So, I, I mean, look, you know, Ron comes in for a lot of criticism from certain quarters, but he turned McLaren into a into a failing Formula One team uh, into an absolute powerhouse that uh, you know dominated. Uh, for large periods of the 80s and 90s and, um, you know, is, is now seeing a resurgence. So I, I, it, well, I don't... it
0: was McLaren v. Williams for much of that time, right? That's, I mean, that's right. It, when Ferrari wasn't on it, we were looking at McLaren or Williams, it seems like.
1: Yeah, I mean, at one point, I remember when Senna won um, in his last ever race in a McLaren in 93. Um, McLaren overtook Ferrari as the most successful constructor now, of course, that all turned around with Ferrari's incredible success in the early noughties. But, um, but yeah, that was down to Ron Dennis. And, and, yeah, his methods and, and his approach and his, the way he even used to speak used to annoy an awful lot of people. But you can't deny, uh, you can't deny that level of success and, and what he was able to achieve at McLaren. So, I mean, if Whitmarsh can bring that uh, insight, and uh, I don't really know what Martin's been doing since he left Formula One honestly um but yeah i mean certainly he's gonna he's gonna i think he has an etsy
0: account and he's been making like you know uh, (laughs) iphone cases with you know art designs on them or maybe some nice throw over blankets or you know home decorating i think it was that type of work (laughs) okay Reasonably successful. Um, Yeah, but, you know, it's interesting because everything you said is true, although uh, Williams did go on and win a couple more championships themselves, uh, so it wasn't just Ferrari. But uh, also, Ron Dennis was – he was the one that brought McLaren back down to failure again in a lot of ways, you could argue, with the – the Honda deal and the uh, new owners that he brought in that eventually were the ones that kicked him out. Uh, you know, so he I, – I have a hard time with – because everything you said is absolutely true. And he, he deserves much credit for all the brilliant things that we see from McLaren. At the same time, he seemed to be a victim of his own hubris to a certain extent.
1: Um, well, look. You know, I think bringing Honda back into the sport was, and and trying to get a manufacturer deal for McLaren was the right move. I don't think anyone anticipated how far off the pace Honda would be when they re-entered Formula One, including Honda. Now, as we all know, they've been always been very successful, and they've they've managed to turn the ship around, and now they have a competitive engine. Um, and so, you could argue that still, if if they'd been able to hold on and stay with Honda, McLaren might be really nicely set up. Um, So I'm not sure you could say that that was necessarily a bad decision. I think there was just, uh, you know, just the execution was lacking. And he was ousted not by the new owners. He was ousted by Monsieur Auger, who was the long-term partner he had at McLaren, and they fell out. And so Auger decided to... to, to, uh, take the one thing that ron coveted more than anything else which was mclaren and booted him out and and was able to do a boardroom coup if you like but um
0: but that was only possible sorry to interject that was only possible because ron had allowed himself to become minority stakeholder that's right in in the in the company so what you you 100 correct what you said i i didn't mean to say it was the new people that got him out in, in 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 concrete terms like that
1: yeah, that's that's all true, um, and you know I think he's. I mean, it's interesting how low pro, how lower profile he keeps these days. I mean, I think he's still. I think he's still suffering from diabetes, isn't he? I'll,
0: well, he also has an Etsy account, and uh, that's. Uh, it's. It, I'm not sure it's been quite as successful as Mr. Whitmarsh's. So that that might be okay. why he's so quiet. He's frustrated at that. Anyway, um, let's move on to IndyCar news. Because IndyCar actually had a couple races run, and uh, we should talk about them. But first, this is fascinating. IndyCar released its 2022 schedule, and their end of the season race is actually going to be earlier than this year's end of the season race. So, uh, but here's the deal: the IndyCar is going to race 17 times in 2022. Their first race is in Saint Petersburg, Florida, at the end of, in the end of February. So. They're going to be racing February 27th, I believe, is going to be their opening round, which might be before Formula One's opening test for 2022. And then they finish on September 11th in 2022. So they have a 17 race schedule, full schedule, shifted. So they're doing this like weird in between, you know how Formula E is kind of over the winter and uh WEC is kind of that way as well, World Endurance Championship. But IndyCar has kind of got this, we start much earlier, but then we finish earlier as well. Uh, what do you make of that?
1: My impression is that they are trying to, to probably move the calendar away from football season, honestly. So uh, pick it up after, after the Super Bowl and trying to get the season done before we get into the thick of the NFL season. That way uh, their races aren't just lost in a thicket of, of football games.
0: And this is american football uh, i'll just clarify briefly, or i don't know what you guys would call it uh North American rugby maybe i don't know
1: <laughs> I, American football exactly,
0: yeah, so anyway, this is the uh, national football league NFL as you said uh not the World Cup or anything around that anyway uh you' know no, I think that's that's a really good point is you know not try to compete with uh the incredibly popular sports here in the United States, but try to find room where there isn't. But think about it in broader terms, in the worldwide racing uh, terms, and what off-season do we have (laughs) anymore? If Formula One is racing until the middle of December and I am not ruling out some Christmas Grand Prix in the not-too-distant future, uh, maybe the Israel Grand Prix... Because, you know, Christmas isn't a big deal there, maybe. Uh, where Where's our off-season? Because we have the 24 Hours of Daytona at the end of January. And now we're into the thick of it with IndyCar in the end of February. And then Formula One starts again in March. So I think uh, rest in peace racing off-season is, <laughs> I think <laughs> I think, where we're going with this.
1: Uh, I mean I don't have a problem with that. I mean obviously you've got to think about the teams, but they're the different series, different p- personnel. Um I mean if you go back What
0: about the podcasters, Chris? What about us? <laughs> but what
1: if you go our back microphones. If you go back before our time, back to the sixties, they didn't have an off season. They used to run an Antipodean series and they'd go down to Australia and they'd they'd race in New Zealand. And uh, you know, that's their summer, and they go racing there, and then they come back to Europe and race when the weather got decent here. So uh, I love motor racing. I'm quite happy to talk about it all year round. I don't have to rest my vocal cords.
0: Well, uh, I'm happy to hear that because there will be plenty to talk about, and it's going to be five oval races in that 17-race schedule, and the remaining 12 will be street and road course races. Um, the opening round is, this, is the St. Petersburg. That's a street course. And the final round is going to be Laguna Seca, which is just the perfect venue, I think, to finish IndyCar racing. And we will talk about Laguna Seca race in just a moment, and that might help explain why.
1: I was disappointed to see in the calendar that we're not just alternating Indianapolis and Laguna Seca, honestly. Let's just do 17 rounds at alternating <laughs> between those two venues. Because <laughs> the Laguna race was awesome, wasn't it? I mean, what a track.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Laguna Seca is in terms of natural terrain to lay down a racetrack. And then the types of corners they put down is right up there with Spa or um, uh, Suzuka. But the, the only difference is it's not, it's not quite as long, so the laps are a bit short. And, you know, modern safety terms, blah, 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 blah. But um, let's start with Portland because Portland was an entertaining race in of itself, And uh, there was lots of close racing. There were lots of passing to watch. Um, I kept a close eye on Scott Dixon uh, through both of these races because, you know, I had that wonderful interview with him. And uh, we were talking about what he's going to do the final three rounds. In Portland, it seemed like he was pretty close to succeeding in what he wanted to do. He qualified up front. He got uh, hit. In the, uh, pa- in the left rear, no, in the right rear uh, by Felix Rosenquist, right in- into turn one on the opening lap. That pushed him off, unsettled his car just enough that he couldn't make the first corner. And in doing so, pushed off Alex Palau, his teammate, and the championship leader in turn one as well. But despite losing all those positions at the beginning of the race with um, some decent luck with yellow flags and some clever racing strategy scott dixon was able to finish that race third and i'm I'm jumping ahead there through a couple other things but i just wanted to give him uh his portland credit uh right off the bat um but uh, were there any things about portland that stood out for you
1: well, I got the impression that the IndyCar field had watched the highlights from Hungary and decided to emulate it at the first corner. <laughs> uh, so Rosenquist played the part of uh, Valtteri Bottas. Um, I did think prior to being hit, though, Dixon was, was being very aggressive and, and quite optimistic down the inside. I think they would have had trouble getting through turn one and two without Mr. Rosenquist's assistance. Oh, uh, possibly. But-
0: I think he would have made it myself, but it, I, I think I agree with you. He was definitely being aggressive, which is what he said he was going to be when, when I interviewed him. Yeah. I think he was on the right side of aggression, uh, just at the limit there. But yeah, could have gone the other way. It was very close, certainly.
1: I mean, it's great to see him fighting, right? I mean, clearly he was on he was behind the eight ball going into into both of these weekends and needed to make some ground in the championship and and he went for it and so even though it didn't didn't work out for him you know he knows that he he didn't leave anything on the table and gave it his best i mean i think the, the 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 important thing to highlight on portland is is you know polo in, in as the championship leader gets you know pushed all the way back to 16th after the first uh, Uh, caution period due to that incident and yet drove such a mature race and uh you know just ran the lap pace that obviously his team were we're telling him ran this helped with the fuel strategy and and the pit stop timing was able to to take the win and that that shows a lot of maturity it shows uh an ability to stay unflustered uh, and not panic because a lot of people in that situation might have tried to overdrive or you know, make up places and, and then uh, end up, you know, getting caught in someone else's accident or causing an accident. So, you know, that that's pretty much clinched him the championship, I think, that drive in Portland.
0: It was certainly a championship-worthy drive, uh, absolutely. And um, there were some other highlights to point out. He actually never led a lap, but Alexander Rossi finally broke this terrible pattern of not getting on the podium. Alexander Rossi finished second, in that race, he drove very well. You know, there's been lots of times throughout uh, last season and this season where he's shown plenty of speed, but just bad luck or uh, unfortunately time mistake, costly mistake, have kept him. Um, but finally, Portland, he broke through and finished second. So I, I was happy for Rossi as um, you know our most recent American hopeful in Formula One. Uh, I'm always I'm always rooting for him just a little bit extra. So uh, I was happy to see that result and uh, also Jack Harvey who is no longer going to be with Michael Shake Racing after uh, Long Beach after the season ends uh, he had a strong uh, position to finish 4th so a nice top 5 result for him And then is Harvey was,
1: uh, is Harvey staying in the sport is he going to another team I, do we know
0: it, it, Nothing has been confirmed but it sounds very likely that yes he will Remain in the sport. I wouldn't be too terribly surprised. This is going to be my, this is my guess, is that maybe Jack Harvey ends up taking Roman Grosjean's seat at um, at Dale Coyne as Grosjean heads to Andretti, which that also has not yet been fully confirmed, but highly expected. It's one of those worst kept secret type things.
1: Yeah, because Hunter Ray leaving Andretti's been formally announced, but they didn't talk that's about right. his replacement. Or that's right. If Hunter Ray is staying in the sport, so yeah, it's going to be a bit of a reshuffle over the winter, no doubt.
0: And Hunter Ray is, as a man that is also in his forties, I believe he's a few months younger than me. He hasn't had as many strong results as you wish to have on your CV going into going into finding another team for someone that's also in his forties. So I, I hope that whatever Hunter Ray does, he's very satisfied with, but I have a feeling we're going to see Hunter Ray in IMSA in sports cars. That's, that's my guess. Okay. But, uh, and Joseph Newgarden Penske top Penske finisher. He was, he rounded out the top five in Portland and, uh, yeah, but I mean, just generally speaking, it was a great race. Graham Ray Hall showed a lot of great pace, but you know, as, uh, uh, Pelo and Dixon got lucky with pit stops. Graham got a bit unlucky with pit stops. You could argue that he made, it was right around the middle of the race, there was a yellow flag where a lot of people stopped. Graham did not, and maybe that proved to be a mistake, but we can never know how it would have happened. But uh, Graham was racing strongly, and he was in in the lead of the race for a while, but uh, had, uh, had a late pit stop take him out. Um, anything else at Portland that stood out for you? Nope. Okay. Well, then let's move on to Laguna Seca or the Roman Grosjean show. Holy goodness! The entire weekend. Let's start with before he even got in the Indy car.
1: Yeah. So uh, he decided to do a few demo laps in a Honda Civic, right? Yeah. And
0: you know maybe they were supposed to do several, but decided to make it only a few
1: because he he crashed the car uh, re-entering the pits. Look, all the greats have done it. I mean, David Coulthard once crashed at the uh, German Grand Prix, entering the pits. That was a that was a classic retirement. Um, yeah, it's it was, it's a great move. Uh, it just just doesn't make the left, <laughs> does it? <laughs> and then I love the way how far it bounces back off the tire wall, and then they both get out and flee. It's like they think it's going to spontaneously right. combust. Like
0: don't tell mom, run away, don't tell mom. <laughs> kind of a move. It was <laughs> it was very funny. I mean, it wasn't. So it was a low speed crash. It was enough to damage the car, but uh, there was no concern. It was low speed into tires, so the drivers were totally fine. The car, I'm sure, was repairable, just you know, not repairable for that weekend. And uh, you know, it's unfortunate because Roman's demo laps. They did have a recording of him doing a lap in the car. You know, it was a good it was a good run. He was really. He was really uh, pushing the Type R in, and it was entertaining to watch. It's just, it's just a shame that uh, he, he bit it going into the pits because it's right there. It's so easy for everybody else to see the damage to, you know, do it off in the <laughs> distance where it's hidden. But anyway, uh, but then we went on to have the Grand Prix weekend itself. And uh, I'm skipping a few things here, but let's just stick with Grosjean here for a second because <laughs> he was insane. He finished. He started the race, uh, you know, middle of the pack. Nothing too terribly. So Thirteenth. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, but he he just drove like like uh, he he saw what Alex Zanardi did in the late nineties in Denny Cart Laguna Seca and thought, yeah, that's too tame. I need to step it up. So uh, Grosjean passed Scott Dixon uh, from deep um, into the corkscrew, got around Scott Dixon. He passed. Uh, 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 McLaughlin into the ha- Andretti hairpin, which is turn two. He passed Pato Award around the outside of turn three. Just this crazy ballsy outside pass there. He ha- he passed uh, Graham Rahal from way way back. I mean, he broke super deep and passed uh, Rahal into the Andretti hairpin. And then to top it all off, he was. I mean, seriously, hundreds of feet behind <laughs> Jimmy Johnson, who was already a lap down and collided into the side of Jimmy Johnson, going into the cor- corkscrew just to get around him, went up on two wheels, kept the car going, kept the car on track, and finished third. Uh, what it, it was just an insane race. And just, it, it was just crazy fun to watch. It, it was, that was stupid. That was romance fault for sure the jimmy johnson incident but uh he got away with it and finished on the podium
1: well, and not only did he make all those terrific passes, which are well worth a watch if you haven't seen them, it, but his pace was so strong. I guess it. after he did hit Johnson, uh, there was some vibration that, that stunted his, his run a little bit. But prior to that, he was well on course to maybe catch Pelot and Herter and, and battle for the win. So, uh, yeah, I mean, clearly he loved the track and was absolutely flying around it. So, I mean, we've all known that he's had... Uh, you know a lot of pace, and he was never always able to show it in Formula One, given the cars he he got to drive. But yeah, his his innate talent shone at Laguna. There's no doubt about that.
0: Yeah, and I I mean that Jimmy Johnson move aside. I'm just so happy to watch him do that and watch him enjoy himself. So those things alone. Um, but we have to we have to now go back in time here just a little bit. Alexander Rossi started the race second. He had finished on the Finished on the podium in Portland. Starts the race second. Things are looking really good for him. Um, Colton Herta started on pole. Uh, Colton's dad, by the way, as a total aside, Brian Herta was known as the Laguna Seca specialist. So he has a good coach in his dad here uh, for certain. But anyway, um, Alexander Rossi on lap two. Colton Herta made a mistake. Gave uh, Rossi a chance to make a run on him exiting turn five. And... They were going into five side by side and Colton gave Rossi plenty of room and then Rossi, something happened. He slid. He lost the grip. He hit Colton Herta. That spun him around and ended his race. So lap two, Rossi's race was, was over as he was trying to make a pass for the lead.
1: Yeah, that's a, that was a curious incident. I mean do you think he, he damaged his steering or broke his steering – on contact with Herta, or had it already broken, and that's why he goes into Herta because it's a very odd manoeuvre. As you said, there's plenty of there's plenty of track width there. He didn't need to to turn into into Herta, so it, it's it's an odd it's an odd looking manoeuvre.
0: Yeah, and there is suspicion that that was my suspicion that something broke, and that's what caused him to slide into Herta in the first place. Um, because it seems like. It would have been pretty sloppy. If you just think about corner radius, Rossi had the better radius around turn five than Herda did because Herta tightened his radius way up to give Rossi room. So Rossi should have been able to maintain speed and not be stressing his tires too terribly hard. So that's my gut feeling is that something broke in the car to uh, cause him to spin into Herda?
1: It is possible to to drive into other people, even on the streets. I mean, Kimi Räikkönen has demonstrated that this year.
0: So. <laughs> I think Kimi was uh, checking Instagram on his phone <laughs> while he was doing that. So, uh, but, yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. And it could just be that he got clumsy with the throttle and spun the rear, and that's what caused the slide, and that's what caused. But, you know, it was more than anything, it was unfortunate to see uh, – to see uh, Rossi do that after he had finally broken through and gotten his podium just the race before. But uh, Colton Hurd on the other hand started on pole. I don't know if he led every single lap, but effectively led the whole race and went on to win the race and just drove brilliantly. I mean, that was, it was just great, great racing. And it is his fifth win in IndyCar, which means that he has won more races than his dad. So I'm sure now he feels like this job is done and he's going to retire.
1: Yeah, I mean, two two good, really good drives from Grosjean, uh, Herter, and, and Pelot sort of kept, his, kept out of trouble and got a solid second to cement his uh, hold on the championship. But you haven't mentioned the star of the show yet. I mean, the real star for me, Jimmy Johnson making a pass on Hinchcliffe. I mean, come on, Jimmy.
0: <laughs> yes, and that was into the corkscrew as well. Yes, yes. Please shower us with your praise of Jimmy Johnson. I want to hear it all.
1: Well, I mean good gracious i mean most of the time he's being passed left right and center or he's passing people backwards but that looked like a really really good move and he finished 17th which i think is a season best for him so it looks like he's uh, he's making some progress albeit fairly slowly but good for him good for him
0: i think that is a a good way to say it he you know he is making progress and he is doing well and you are you're absolutely right he finished 17th Behind Connor Daly and ahead of Rena Spike. So, yeah, solid run for him, and he was only one lap down, not uh, more than that. So, good for him.
1: Yeah, and, and on probably IndyCar's most challenging track, right? So, if he well, can. It's certainly if he can, one of them, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if he can perform to a decent level on that track, you would think he could translate that to other tracks too. And especially if he, is he going to run ovals next year and and go back to what should be his strength? I mean, he might, he might actually start to, you know, trouble the midfield on a regular basis. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I did enjoy Takuma Sato's. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes.
0: (laughs) I wanted to talk about that. Yes. That was another corkscrew incident where, And and again, this is uh, something we need to talk about because that not only messed up Scott Dixon's race because Scott Dixon was the one that had to deal with uh, Takuma Sato uh, continually taking up more and more of the track um, as he backed in, as he backed away from the Corkscrew Apex. Scott Dixon, uh, that ruined his race and mathematically pulled him out of the championship hunt. So Scott Dixon will not be 2021 IndyCar champion uh, so he's stuck at six championships um, for now. Yeah,
1: uh, yeah, it was a, a very odd incident. I mean, obviously Sato lost it on his own, and he's literally rolling across the corner. Um, and could easily have applied the brakes to give Scott room to to make it through the turn, but just get rolling into him. So Scott was forced to take evasive action over the gravel trap, and and yeah, real sloppy driving from from Sato. No idea what he was thinking there, and I can't imagine that Scott's going to buy him a beer anytime soon for his trouble.
0: Yeah, uh, Scott Dixon did uh, manage to keep going and finish on the lead lap in thirteenth, but uh, which was you know ahead of Takuma Sato, but. Yeah, that's that's hardly <laughs> that's hardly what uh, he was looking for. So, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, Scott Dixon, he was Scott was already he was aware of the as he was trying to avoid it by going way outside. Had had Scott Dixon, you know, traveled through time and saw that Takuma Sato was just going to continually back away. He could have probably tucked in and just run the apex really tightly and kept on going. And you know. Dixon was – he was in a place where he could have uh, had a strong result. He did qualify eighth. So he was in the top ten and he could have moved forward and stayed in the championship hunt. But, yeah, you know, too bad. He's got to look into that time machine and uh, get it going so he has a better chance of understanding these things. <sighs>
1: Yeah, it's a shame for him. So now we're down to three in the championship battle. But honestly, it looks like it's pillows to lose, right? He's got a 35-point lead over award, 48 over Newgarden. It's only 54 you can win in a in a weekend. So uh, I think if he finishes in the points, it's hard to see him uh, losing losing the crown.
0: Well, he is... Uh, this is what's fantastic about Dindy Carr. He is one of three people in contention for the championship going into the final race and... The way IndyCar runs, there's lots of things that could just poor luck put him in a place where he scores very few points. So, unlike Formula One, where it would take something really extraordinary to occur for someone to not be there or thereabouts in this realm of points, you know, IndyCar very on a very regular basis throws people off. You know, Alex Pelot is way too familiar with that. Uh, considering the run he had at the Indianapolis road course in the summer where his engine just decided to fail in the middle of it, you know, uncommonly. Or um, in, in southern Illinois around St. Louis where he just got tagged after a restart in uh, at, at the short oval there. So, you know, things can happen. And uh, Long Beach is a street course and a very tight one at that. And especially that Long Beach hairpin, that is roughly as tight as uh as monaco's famous hairpin it's it's very slow corner and uh so a lot of a lot of bottlenecky things can happen there so you're right that Pelot is in a very good position but it is there's still a lot of things to <laughs> give him some sleepless nights
1: oh absolutely and and Interestingly, so you, not only have we got still three drivers in contention, but we've got Ganassi versus McLaren versus Penske, and we've got Honda versus Chevy. So it uh, would be interesting to see who uh, comes out on top. I was looking through the season's results. Pelot's only had one pole position, whereas Award and Newgarden have both had three. So, you know, maybe that's going to be key, is to see if one of those championship contenders can, can put it on the front row and dominate the race and then put him under pressure that way. Um... But, uh, you know, I, I think he's, as we talked earlier, he's, he's managed to, to withstand the pressure so far. And despite setbacks in Portland, came back and got a, you know, a win and then obviously drove very well at Monterey. So he seems like he's got it under control. But you're right, other things can happen that's outside, uh, outside your ability to, to manage. So you have to hope the the racing gods are at least uh, not, uh, not against him at the weekend.
0: That's exactly right. And he's shown excellent racing resolve with these types of incidents that have happened earlier in the season. So um, I, you're absolutely right about what you said. And uh, i will be very interesting to watch. The final race is on the 26th of September at Long Beach. So the same day as the Russian Grand Prix, but again, uh, much later in the day. So you can easily watch both and uh, catch a lot of great IndyCar racing. And then, yeah, so late on Sunday, we will have, an IndyCar champion, and it will be either Alex Pillow, Padua Award, or Joseph Newgarden. So,
1: yeah. And, it, and it, in addition to that, we've got a battle between McCaughlin and Grosjean for Rookie of the Year. Grosjean's got some work to do. He's 20 points behind. But uh, as you were saying earlier, that's not insurmountable. So, so it'd be good to see who uh, takes that crown as well.
0: Absolutely right. And if uh, all the pace cars survive in the meantime...
1: well Grosjean said he could drive a stick he just didn't say he could drive it around corners right he could drive a stick
0: he's just not good with those brakes that's the uh that's a the hot brakes is what get him so um and when you're done watching those things you should definitely check out my latest video and uh this one I'm quite curious to hear your opinions on it Chris because I have a feeling that you might uh have a little bit of a biased opinion on it because it's the 2022 Toyota Tundra, the third-generation Toyota full-size truck that is coming late this year as a 2022 model. And uh, Chris, do you do you know anything about this truck? And what do you think of it?
1: I haven't really looked too much into the the latest one, other than I did notice the grill is uh, quite large and seems to droop into the front fascia. Not, not Name a, a car. I'm-
0: that 's come out that has a smaller grill than the one before i mean that 's that 's one of the most common trends i 've seen across the board b m w kidney grills all of them that everything 's growing
1: everything it 's not for the better though is it i mean aesthetically yeah i mean it's the truck looks looks more butch i would say but i don 't think it looks it 's not well in my opinion that well styled but uh, anyway there 's some pretty pretty clever features on it um, and uh, I, I can't imagine this will hurt their sales too much despite the restyle.
0: It's, they've made some interesting decisions. So it has now got some of the truckier bits that uh, Ford and Chevrolet have been doing for a little while now. They went clever on uh, bed material, so that's been an interesting little war between Ford and Chevrolet, and uh, this Tundra now has a composite bed, and uh, they've also jumped into the no-longer-having-V8s train you know they there it's two twin turbocharged v6 options one hybrid one not so whether you would like this truck or not is irrelevant you will love my video on the toyota Tundra. <laughs> that's the important thing where i am just endlessly entertaining for 12 and a half minutes straight it is the best video on youtube bar none no comment nothing <laughs>
1: I mean, I had nothing, no comeback to that. That was a resoundingly positive statement. I felt I should leave you to it.
0: (laughs) Well, I can't think of a better way to end. I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com where you can also read an article I wrote about that Toyota Tundra. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars and check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash FWCars. Chris, great conversation. Thanks, Robin. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. (laughs) Your silence was (laughs) deafening. Oh, man. Oh, gosh.
1: Oh,